Welcome to the Islands Christian Church Podcast. We're so glad you're listening with us today. You can worship with us in person in Savannah, Georgia, or with our live stream every Sunday at 10 a.m. Take a minute to subscribe to this podcast to hear a new message every Monday. Thanks for listening. Today, we're continuing our series called Come and See. And we've been talking about this whole conversation for a while. Uh, We're thinking week three now. And what I've been challenging you to think about is how you could invite your friends to come and see Jesus. And that might mean inviting them to church. That might mean inviting them to your house. That might mean inviting them into your life and uh, whatever it looks like, inviting them to come and see. But one of the things I want to be honest with you about that I don't know that most preachers will be honest with you about, but I want to be super honest with you about this is that most of your friends that are not believers, most of your friends who are not believers in Jesus, okay, if their life is going pretty well, meaning they don't have any crisis in their life, they got money in the bank, job is good, kids are good, you know, if they don't have a crisis in their life and they're, and they're not a believer, they probably don't care about Jesus. They probably don't care about your faith. They probably don't care that you go to church. They probably don't care that you believe this stuff. They don't care. Now, I'm open to argument, but, you know, I worked at the TSA for a a lot of years, back many years ago. And I worked with, uh, I don't know how many guys and women uh, every day. And there was one believer on our whole crew. And no one else was a believer in Jesus. And no one else cared. They didn't care. Their life was fine. They were, they were just living their life. The fact of the matter is, is when we talk in church world, like, hey, we need to invite people to see Jesus. We need to invite people to meet Jesus. We need to invite them to, like, consider Jesus. The reality is, is if you bring it up with most people at your workplace, you're like, hey, you know, I believe in Jesus and I know you don't, but I want to tell you about him. They're going to be like, listen, I don't, I don't really need Jesus. Like, that's their whole, that's the mentality, right? I don't need Jesus. Like, I'm good. Like, my family's good. My marriage is good. Uh, or, you know, kids are good. We got money in the bank. I got a good job. I, I don't see where I need Jesus. Because most people out there are kind of thinking that Jesus and God and religion is for you if you are a mess. Like if you're just kind of a mess, like you just, you know, everything's always broken for you. And you're like, well, I guess you need God to be a crutch for you. This is kind of how they see it. And anybody tracking with me? They agree with this? This is kind of how they see it. They're like, they're like, I, I mean, if you need Jesus to get through life, that's fine. Like, I'm not going to get in your way of what you need, but I'm strong enough to handle it without the whole religion thing. And it's just mis, it's this misidea that what Jesus offers us and what God offers us is help for our crisis or help for our problems. That's a mis, that's a wrong idea in our culture, right? And we know this is true because number one, when life is going good, they don't care about God. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care about church. But as soon as life gets bad for your non-believing friends, what do they want to talk about? They want to talk about God. They want to talk about Jesus. They want to talk about what you believe, which is good, which is good. Because if you've loved them well as a believer, if you've treated them with respect and kindness and you've made your faith public, in other words, you made it known to them that you're a believer, when crisis hits them, guess what they're going to do? They're going to talk to you. And then that's going to be a critical moment for you to tell them the truth, to tell them what is reality. And they're going to believe that, uh, okay, I've had this crisis happen to me and my wife is leaving me. My husband has cheated on me. My finances are a mess. I'm losing my job. My kid is sick, whatever the crisis is. 
and oh my goodness, I need this to happen. I, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to, you know, Stephen at work and I know he's a God person. He's a church person. I'm going to see if he can help me. And the whole idea is that if I can find a God person or a church person or a Christian person, that they'll be able to help me. And then, then my crisis will be alleviated because I'll get like a magic pill from them or some magic Christian pixie dust and then they'll fix it. And then my life will be better. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? Right. This is how people think our faith works. And that this is what they think. And so it's really difficult if you're going to be someone um, that invites people to come and see, it's really difficult to know how to deal with that. And so I, I want to, how to deal with people who think that way. So the first thing I want to tell you to do is you have to love them. So if you work with someone who's like Christianity's for the week and, you know, whatever, you, you agree with them. You're like, yes, it is, bro. <laughs> Christianity's for the week. That you're like, you are 100% right. I was weak. I needed a savior. So he was like, oh, you're just weak. Never like, well, no, we're not weak. I'm strong enough to have faith. No, when somebody says you're just weak. That's why you have to have faith. You say, I am weak. They, they're weak too. They just don't know it yet. Okay. So the first thing is you love them. You don't get angry with them. You don't get upset with them. You don't try to like argue with them. You just love them. You just love them. You serve them. Secondly, you serve them. Someone you work with, someone in your neighborhood who thinks Christianity is kind of for the week. And, you know, I'm not really into that. Don't really need that. When they have something happen and they need like, help with something, you jump in, you help, you always help. So you love them, serve them, you treat them with respect. You always respect their worldview. You don't ever, you know, you don't ever look at them and say they're stupid for not believing in God. You don't do that. You love them, you respect them, you care for them. But there's, there's this, there's this fourth thing I want you to do whenever you have a friend like this or a coworker like this or a family member like this. I want you to be ready. Everybody say, be ready, be ready. I want you to be ready. Be ready. Because what's going to happen is when crisis comes their way and life falls apart and things just crumble, they're going to want to talk to somebody. And if you have loved them and treated them with respect and been kind to them, and if you have uh, served them, then what's going to happen is in that moment, they're going to talk to you because they need help. And so you have to be ready. Be ready when they face a crisis and their ears are open and their heart is open. And because you've loved them well, they're going to talk to you and you're going to be able to help them make sense of life in the midst of their crisis. And so the story we're looking at today is in Mark chapter two. It's the story of a man who's in crisis and whose friends who love him came and took care of him because they loved him. And what they did to take care of him is they got him to Jesus. They got him to Jesus. All righty. So Mark chapter two is where we're going to be. So if you have your Bibles, you can go there. We're going to read this story together. Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. This is what it says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit. This was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now, I want to point out a few things from this story. The first thing I want to point out to the story is verse three tells us that some men came. Some men came. Four were carrying him. But some came. So most likely, we don't know this for sure, but most likely this was not just four people that brought their paralyzed friend. This was most likely more than four. This was most likely a community of people, maybe cousins and brothers and sisters and family, family members, right? These, these uh, people that had known him, so they, they had been taking care of him, looking out for him, tending for, to his needs. They, they were his family, like his community of care. And whenever they heard that Jesus was in town and that Jesus had come home, they all said, hey, we need to go and take Jesus to, we need to take him to see Jesus. And then four of them took care of carrying him. And I think what we learn from this is that um, it's very rare for you alone by yourself to talk to your friend or your coworker about Jesus and for them to say, oh, now that you've mentioned it to me and you've told me about it, where do I sign? How do I become a believer? I want to do this. And I'm not saying it never happens, but it's super rare. Okay. Super rare for that to happen. Most likely what's going on when you're talking to a coworker or a neighbor about Jesus is you are one of some people. You are one of some people. There are some people who were caring for caring for this paralyzed man. There were more than just the four. There were a, a community of people that were that were taking care of this man. And so you, when you are engaging with a non-believer, talking with someone who's not a Christian, caring for them, loving them, respecting them, you don't know this, but you are one of probably hundreds that are engaging with this person. You are probably one of a thousand touches that God is moving with and working with in this person's life. You have no idea of that, which is why our faithfulness is so important. Because we're all playing a small little part in the work that God is doing in someone's life. Now you think, well, Stephen, couldn't God just do this without me? Couldn't he just, well, of course, like he could just paint a, you know, a thing across the sky and say, Bill, believe in God. And Bill would be like, I believe in God, right? I'm in. How do I sign up? He could do that, right? But the, the, the thing is, God has made a decision to use us. He, he's invited you into the partnership of leading people to Christ. You are part of the work that he's doing in the world. And so God has decided that you are his hands and feet. You are his instruments. Now, think for a second. When you became a Christian, when you became a Christian, who were the people that were involved in helping convince you, you know, to help you see uh, who Jesus was and helping you believe in that? Think about that for a second. You know, the, if you were a kid, was there a Sunday school teacher? You know, it, it, was there a pastor? Maybe it was your mama. Maybe it was friends at school. If you were older in life, maybe you were an older, uh, uh, you know, adult uh, and you came to faith later in life. Think about that for a second. Who, who was involved in that story for you? How many people were part of that process for you? 
It wasn't just one. Now, you may think sometimes, oh, yeah, I had this conversation with this guy and that was it for me. I signed up. But if you think deeply about it, there are so many other people involved in the story of how you came to Christ. And this is what God does. He's using people in concert with other believers. He's weaving the stories and the words you're saying to your non-believing friends and your non-believing neighbors. He's weaving your words and your stories with the other words and other stories. He's weaving all of this together to draw the hearts of people to God. And that's that's important. God draws the hearts of people to himself. We don't draw the hearts of people to God. We don't have that power. You don't have enough. You don't have enough wisdom. You don't have enough rhetoric. You don't have enough skill. Like you can't convince anyone that God is real and that Jesus is his son who came to die for you and save you. You can't convince anyone of that, but God can. So how does he do it? He does it through you. Can I say that again? He does it through you. You are how he does it. You alone? No, not you alone. You in concert with many other believers sharing our story of how Jesus has changed our life as we have opportunity, always being ready to share our story. Um, There's something else this story teaches us about helping our friends connect with Jesus. And that's, this is, this is a big one. So the, you know, the first one is you're, you're one of some, you're one of many, right? So do your part, be faithful because God's working through other people at the same time. Be faithful. Second thing is Sharing your story with non-believing friends, inviting them to come and see Jesus will cost you something. It will cost you something. And this is hard for some people because they don't want to expend you know, the cost to help someone see Jesus, but it's going to cost you things. So these guys, uh, number one, it cost everybody who went that day their time, their, their emotional, all the time they had been investing in this guy, taking care of him and looking out for him. It cost them that. And then the four guys who were taking him, they you know, uh, went up on the roof. And I mean, what we don't realize is Um, the roof was a really hard labor intensive thing to build because you basically use mud and sticks and leaves and, and just kind of natural fiber to, to build a waterproof roof. Okay. So to tear it up is a really bad thing to do. Okay. It's not like there's somebody's going to throw a tarp. They didn't have a tarp, right? So it wasn't like when they got done, everybody's like, Hey man, I got a blue tarp in my truck. In my toolbox, if y'all go grab that, we'll cover this guy's roof. I'll be fine. No, these guys, when they tore the roof up and they tore a hole in the roof, they were incurring a cost. Like the home, you know, Whoever owned the home that Jesus was staying in was probably like, Jesus, man, I was good with you staying with me. I didn't know you people were going to be throwing such a party that you're tearing the place down. You know what I mean? Like, this is crazy. So so they, they're tearing the roof apart. So it costs someone to repair that roof. It costs them. To, it also costs those, those four guys and the people that brought uh, him to Jesus just emotional energy. They didn't know what was going to happen. What if they couldn't get to Jesus? What if when they got to Jesus, Jesus said, what are you guys doing here? I think failure was always a possibility. Failure is always a possibility. When we're, when we're talking to our friends about our faith, it's going to, it's going to cost us emotional energy. It's going to cost us relational energy. And we only have so much bandwidth that we can take. It's going to cost us uncomfortable conversations and awkward moments, but it's also going to cost us this sense of like, is this gonna is this gonna be okay? Is this gonna fail? Am I gonna look like an idiot? And here's the thing: when you talk about your story with Jesus to a non-Christian or a non-believer, let me just tell you, there is a moment that you will feel like an idiot. Because they will look at you like you're an idiot. And you just have to decide that you're okay with that. That you're so you're so convinced of Jesus' love for you 
that you're okay with a non-believer thinking you're stupid. Like we gotta really get there. And I'm not sure all of us are there. Because when I talk to people about sharing their faith, they're like, well, I just don't want to, I don't want to, you know, look stupid. And I'm like, why not? Like we believe a dude resurrected from the dead. No one's ever done that. We don't have any proof of that. Like we can't, like all we have is the evidence of how the world changed because of the resurrection. So so they're going to think you're stupid until they themselves have an experience with Jesus and realize that you're not stupid. But we're so like, it's going to cost you. It costs these guys something. Um, There's also something else we learned from this story that these men had intense faith that Jesus could say, help their friend. Now they didn't know he would, but they had intense faith that he could. They didn't doubt that he could. They just probably wondered if he would. And notice that in the in verse five of their story that Jesus saw their faith. Do you see that? He saw their faith. He didn't see the man on the paralyzed. Come, can we just think just for a second? The man on the mat, like he obviously had faith because we're like, hey, you want to go see Jesus? Yeah, man, let's go see Jesus. But how much power did he exert in going to see Jesus? Everybody say zero. Zero. Like his faith didn't have, his faith had no action. You know why? Because he's paralyzed. <laughs> All right, that's just, that's, that's science. Follow the science, people. Okay, that's science. All right, he couldn't move. So his faith had zero action. But Jesus said when he saw their faith, he saw their faith, that means maybe not just the four, but the 18 that are outside, right? The, the people who made sure to get their friend of Jesus, he saw their faith and he knew that they were convinced they were convinced that he could help them. So we talked about this week one in this series that if you're going to be a person who's a believer and you're going to talk about your faith openly, if you're going to go public with your faith, if you're going to talk about it to non-believers, if you're going to talk about it to coworkers and friends and neighbors that don't believe, that don't sure understand, don't understand the gospel, you have to be 100% convinced that this stuff is true. You have to doubt your doubts. You have to be like, Well, I have some doubts from time to time, but I doubt my doubts. And I'm more convinced that this is true than I ever doubt. You have to be in this place where you're like, I am convinced that Jesus can save people. That he loves my friends. Like, let's imagine with me for a second. You have a neighbor who's not a believer, not a Christian. And you've been praying for your neighbor. We talked about this too in another sermon. You've been praying for your neighbor. You've been praying and asking God to lead them to Christ and to save them. Um, what helps you cross over the, the line of actually going from just praying for your neighbor to actually talking to them about your faith? What helps you cross that line is faith, confident belief that Jesus loves your neighbor more than you do. You got to believe that, man, with everything in your being. That yeah, you love your neighbor, and yeah, you want what's best for your neighbor, and you're willing to sacrifice for your neighbor and serve your neighbor. But you got to be convinced that, you know what, as much as I love my neighbor, Jesus loves them even more. And when you are convinced of that truth, that Jesus can help them, Jesus can save them, that he loves them, you will, you will cross over that line to share your story of faith with your neighbor. You see, your faith, when you're convinced that Jesus is loving and kind and good, when you're convinced of that in your deepest part of your being, that faith helps your neighbor actually see Jesus or helps your non-believing coworker actually see Jesus. And well, how is that possible? 
Well, when you walk around every day of your life convinced that the creator of the universe loves you and is affectionate towards you, do you think that impacts your mood and impacts your work life a little bit? If it doesn't, we need to have a coffee, right? It does. And when I have confident faith that, I, that my life is not all there's going to be, that this is not it, like that my 65, 75, 80 years, when I have confident faith that this is not it, and, I, and, and when problems arise at work or problems arise in the neighborhood and I don't freak out like everybody else is freaking out, I'm like, well, you know, we'll get through this. It'll be fine, you know? And I'm not saying I'm always good at this, by the way. I'm just saying my faith wants, my faith can help me be good at this. Okay, so if you're going, man, I wish I could be like Stephen, don't do that, okay? Because you can ask our elders in our church, they're like sometimes having to say, bro, we need you to like take some deep breaths, like it's going to be okay. Like the, the fact of the matter is, is that my faith is helping me be a person that looks at life circumstances and says, okay, this isn't good, but I'm confident God's in the middle of this. And I'm confident that in the end, somehow, some way, this will make sense to me. And I'm going to trust that he's moving. Now, if I'm living that way in my day-to-day life, do you think my coworkers are over there freaking about freaking out about a sales quota that was missed? You know, they're like in there throwing things against the wall. Do you think that they're going to see my reaction compared to their reaction? Yeah, they are. So your faith, your, your, your like real sense of being convinced that this is all true helps your non-Christians, friends, see Jesus, they'll begin to see that it's real, not because you tell them, not because your arguments are good, not because you, you know, have got like Bible verses memorized, none of that. They'll see it on your face, in your speech, in your walk, in your hands. They'll see how you react to bad news, how you react to good news. They'll, this is a big one in, in life and neighborhood and in, you know, especially like among friend groups at work. One of the biggest tells of a Christian, the biggest signs that a person's a Christian in my mind is whenever there's good news in the office about somebody else. Okay. So when like at the workplace, oh man, did you hear so-and-so? Like he had an uncle die and left him like $40,000. How do most people at work respond about somebody else getting like a windfall of good luck? What are they They're kind of negative about it, right? They're like, man, he doesn't deserve that. Now God, I can't believe he got that happening. He's such a, you know, right? You know what I'm talking about? You have seen this act, this attitude? The Christian in that environment remembers what Romans says and says, rejoice with those who rejoice. And we say, man, that, that, happened, to, that happened to Steve. His, he inherited $40,000 from a guy who didn't, you know, a family member. That happened to him. Man, thank God that he's been blessed like that. Wow, what a gift he's received. Now, this, this is a simple thing. But when all the non-Christian friends around there are being envious and jealous and like feeling like they're getting cheated in life, you're going, hey, this is great news. It's great news for Steve. I'm not envious. I'm not jealous. I'm excited for you. That's a sign that your faith is real. It's simple, but your non-Christian friends see it. Now, here's the hard part to hear from this text. This is the tough part. Your friend who is in crisis, uh, whether it's a messed up marriage, a sick kid who's dying, a dying parent, a loss of a job, your friend who is in crisis, believe it or not, stay with me, this is Believe it or not, their crisis being fixed is not their greatest need. Their crisis being fixed is not their greatest need. And what do they think? They think, man, we got to get my marriage saved. We got to get my kids sick. We got to 
we got to solve our finances. I got to get a new job. They think that, hey, I need to talk to you because you're a God person and I want this crisis ended in my life. I want it to be averted. And so you're a God person, you're a church person. So maybe you can help me get rid of this crisis. But if you're a believer in Jesus and a follower of Jesus, you know that their greatest need is not to have their crisis averted. It's not. If you look at the story here in verse five, what does Jesus say to the man? They get him there. They bring him through the roof. And what he says, I, he, Jesus sees their faith. And what does he say? He says, what? Son, your sins are forgiven. Now let that sit on you for a second. When Jesus is going to be handing out something that you need the most, it isn't to have your legs back. <laughs> you see, for us, we're like, I mean, I imagine the disciples when they when they got him down, and they were all. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, not disciples. I imagine those four men when they got him down. They got him on the uh, on the ground in front of Jesus, and they were like, "Okay, he's gonna do his thing now. This dude's gonna be walking out. We're gonna be playing. We're gonna be playing kickball later today with our friend. Like this is gonna be awesome. I can't wait. This is gonna be all. They get him down in front of Jesus, and Jesus goes, "Son, your sins are forgiven." And those guys are like, "Okay, okay, okay, cool, man. Jesus, that's cool. Is it like two for one day, maybe?" Because I don't know if you noticed, but he didn't walk in here. We had to lower him. Did you notice that? Jesus, did you see that? Maybe. How do we how do we help him see? Jesus, he's paralyzed. You know what that means? It means he can't walk. He can't work. He can't take care of anything. He's constantly having to be weighted on hand and foot. It really help him out. Honestly, it'd help us all out. You could do that cool thing you do, you know. You make people see that couldn't see, walk that couldn't walk. You know, I think, did you do that for this guy? I'm sure that there was some confusion on their part. But what Jesus does for him is the greatest need he has. He meets his greatest need, and that is to have this his sins forgiven. Now, we need to always keep this in mind for only not only our friends who are not believers, but ourselves as well. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven. My greatest need to have my sins forgiven. Because regardless of what happens to me on this planet, in this life, the Bible tells me I will spend an eternity on a new heaven and new earth with God, or I will spend eternity separated from God in a space dedicated just for people who desire to be separated from God. And what makes the difference is whether my sins have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. Your greatest need and my greatest need is not to have my crisis averted or solved. My greatest need is to have my sins forgiven. And so when you're talking to your friend, it's very tricky because your friend wants their illness to go away. They want their crisis to be solved. And they're talking to you about God and they're talking to you about Jesus and they're talking to you about church. And you're going to be tempted to say, um, well, yeah, man, you know, start coming to church and start leaning into God and I bet it'll get better. Don't say that. 
Their marriage may still end. Their finances may still crumble. Their kid may still die. It may. You say, well, God would never do that. Well, it happens every day. Instead, tell your friend who's not a believer, who's uh, never thought about God or church or Jesus until this crisis, and now they want to talk because they want this crisis to be averted. Tell them the truth. Say to them, hey, I've been through some crises as well. And I know right now you are afraid and scared to death of what's going to happen. I get that. And all I can tell you is we don't know what's going to happen. You don't know and I don't know and there's no way to find out. But I can tell you how I've gotten through crisis in my life. Is my heavenly father loves me. And I'm in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I have faith in Jesus and my sins have been forgiven and I have relationship with God. And I know that sounds weird to you because you're thinking you don't need a relationship with God. You need your wife to come back home or you need your husband to stop doing what he's doing. You think you need this crisis averted. You think you need this crisis solved. But what I'm telling you, what you actually need is a connection with your heavenly father who loves you, who's for you. And you can have that connection through Jesus, his son, and have your sins forgiven and be reunited with your heavenly father. And that whatever crisis you ever go through the rest of your life, he will walk with you through it hand in hand and be with you. And that will change everything about Not the circumstance, but how your heart is living in the circumstance. Tell them the truth. Because they need to hear that. They need to hear that their greatest need is to be reunited with their Heavenly Father through having their sins forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ. And that if they gain that free gift through Jesus, then their circumstances, though they be terrible and bad, though they be miserable and dark, they will be able to walk through them with the love of their heavenly father. This is what Jesus shows us. And he does go on to heal the man and he gives him his legs back, but he does that for a reason. He does that to prove to the Pharisees that he has the authority to forgive sins. Because what did they say? Who can forgive sins? Only God. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, okay, boys, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Well, the obvious answer in that question is it's easier to say, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. That's easiest to say. Hey, your sins are forgiven. You can't prove whether his sins have been forgiven or not, right? Nobody can be like, oh, look, the lights flickered. Now we know his sins are forgiven. You can't prove it. So Jesus says, I'm going to prove to you that I have authority to say your sins are forgiven. I'm going to tell him to take up his mat and walk. And so he tells him to take up his mat and walk. And sometimes Jesus does that. Sometimes he heals and helps people through their crises and gives them the miracle. So they'll be convinced. Sometimes he does it. Sometimes he doesn't. What your friend needs more than anything else who's not a believer is you who actually believes this stuff and will tell them the truth.